Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast. It is my pleasure to talk with people in our community who are making a difference. My name is Dr. Jim Hoven, and as the host of the show today, I'm really fortunate and blessed to have a community activist over the last 40 plus years in my midst. And unfortunately, we can't be together today in person due to uh, COVID restrictions and this kind of thing. But I think you're going to love this young lady's story. She's so amazing and has done so many things, but I can't wait to dig in, dive in, and, and let you hear the rich context of a life well lived. So as we get started, let me introduce without any further ado, Miss Sharon V. Hill. Sharon, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join me on the show today. And thank you for having me part of your podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be exciting. And I'll tell you, this is, I think this is like your first podcast that you've done, right? After all the things you've done, is this the first for you? Yes, it is. Unfortunately, you know, technology was uh, a lot further ahead than I was back in the day. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> I am honored. Listen, I am 100% honored to have the opportunity to be your first podcast because the story that you have and the richness of your life is going to be such a blessing to so many. So I want to jump right in and basically get kind of a, a perspective of you from, from, from what I understand. And a person who works with us, Tammy Quintana, she is incredible community, uh, community manager for us. She's out in the community meeting with people, helping create just magic between our firm and residents of the community who have different needs. You are a mentor of hers. And from what she's briefed me and told me in the research that I've done, you're a Colorado native. You were, you were born down South, right? Walsenburg or something. I was born in um, between Walsenburg and Fort Garland. I was born on a, actually a little farm there. And then I was raised in Pueblo. Okay. And so what so was my it family like? are native here. My natives. Are, we are natives. We've been here since it was Mexico. Are you kidding me? That many generations, even before the territory was started, your family was here. Yes, they were here from there. They were actually Spanish. They came over from Spain and came up through Galveston, Texas, and settled in the Walsenburg area because the terrain was similar to the terrain that they lived in in Spain. So we're multi-generations. Um, the, of course, they did not bring over senoritas on the boat. So <laughs> we're a mixture of Spanish and Indian. Yes. And you know what? There's a fantastic documentary that Tammy sent me over of that beautiful mix of, um, of, of the Spaniards and the Native Americans and even the Mexicans as it came through. It's a, it's a wonderful documentary. I haven't even gotten all the way through it yet, but I'm riveted. I'm absolutely riveted as I've gone through the, the first good portion of it. And what a rich history. Yeah, it, it is very much. And that's why a lot of us will have the Spanish and the mixture blood. We have the green eyes. We're fair skin. A lot of us have red hair. So we, we're a very mixed type of uh, blood. You know, as well as we married Mexicans also, but we have a very rich heritage. That is so beautiful. We're going to talk about that because I know that played a lot in your life. I'm interested to see um, when were you growing up? What was the decade that you would consider your childhood decade living in, in Pueblo? Well, I was born in 54. Okay. So I, I was raised more in Pueblo. 
my decade was, you know, Pueblo was different, a lot of Italians, a lot of uh, Mexicans, a mixture of us. Uh, it was during the era, the most prominent um, thing I remember is during the Kennedy era. That's when we were there. Um, going through a lot with um, the struggles of the Bay of Pigs, a lot of different things going on there. Um, my family, later on in life, they would sign up for for the war. My family served in almost every war um, because that's one thing in our community that was very prominent was to be, to join the service, to serve the country. So we were very active in service um, as far as every generation of my family. That is so, so wonderful. Thank you, guys. I'm, I'm thanking you on behalf of your family because when, I mean, without that, without the support of so many groups, uh, I mean, you know, whether it be the, the white slash Caucasian community, all the minority communities, without us pulling together at that time, this country could look a whole lot different right now. So we're very, very thankful and grateful for uh, for all that you and your family and so many families like yours did. And I, I think that must have played a huge influence on you growing up, right? And Colorado was certainly different in the 50s and 60s than it is today. Denver has boomed. And, and now I know you're, you know, you've spent so many years here. But I mean, in, in Pueblo at that time, it had to be a completely different animal. What was the what was the the culture like of growing up in small rural Colorado back in the 60s? Well, I think uh, Pueblo wasn't as small as some of the other locations because we had the steel mill, which was big during the wars. Um, but the era was different because I was a straight-A student, but I was Hispanic. So they would put us in typing classes and cooking classes, even though we had the ability to go to college. So we, were, we as a community, and especially my age, I graduated in 72, we all found our own scholarships to go on to college because that was not something that was pushed uh, for Hispanics. So it was find your own way to do what you need to do. So therefore, two, two weeks after I graduated from high school, we moved, a group of my friends and I moved to Denver. We worked at DU for the summer, and then we had received scholarships to go to uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Wow, that's where I went. We are RAM connected. I love that. Did you enjoy your CSU experience? Well, I only actually stayed there one year because I met Cesar Chavez and I started organizing farm workers. And then I transferred to my friends and I transferred to Boulder uh, because we wanted to get more involved in the community movement. And so we transferred to Boulder. So I only had one year experience there, but it was a wonderful experience. That is good. I enjoyed that as well. But I, I'm intrigued now when you say that, that CU offered you different opportunities. Taking one step back, so you started helping organize uh, the, the farmers and some of their needs. Did you, you were a straight A student. Did you always have this pre, predisposition, Sharon, for 
wanting to be involved in uh, activism and community outreach work. And I don't know if you want to call it nonprofit work. W was that in your heart along with this straight A student mind or how did that develop in you? That developed more in high school because I would see the difference. My mother, I was adopted within the family, but my mother was a little darker complected. And I saw the difference of how they treated people who were darker complected or who spoke Spanish. And that started me looking at things differently, but it wasn't until I went to college and met Cesar Chavez that I realized that there was a true difference of uh, the treatment between Mexicanos, Hispanics, all of us together based on economics, not based on um, our, our uh, intellectual capacity, but based on simple economics. Um, so that is where I truly started following and becoming an activist was back in college. Okay. And what was your first um, taste of that experience? Because I know a lot of people now, especially as you look at some of the millennial generation and even coming in the gener gener generation to follow, there's a big desire again that seems to have waned in the, you know, the uh, Gen Xers and some of the Gen Yers that is is now looking for something to get into bigger than themselves whether it's the you know the climate and taking care of earth or taking care of you know animals or being part of something what what was it um that was your your first taste what drew you to it how did you know that was going to be the life that you were going to live well i think because our basic of our our feeling towards mother earth you know our family were were small time small you know farm so we everything we grew we ate we milked cows you know we did everything from the land and the farm workers you know they were picking uh food for everyone else to sustain the uh the world and what i felt was that they were being treated badly their conditions were horrible so we, I was working with Cesar Chavez and trying to organize the lettuce workers. And doing that, I learned a lot because, for instance, we would stand outside a, a Safeway and ask people not to buy lettuce because we were trying to get push a point. Well, people would go in, buy lettuce, and throw it at us. And then we would go to the farms in center Colorado and try to get the farmers to unionize while the farm workers the, farm, the owners of the farms would come out with their shotguns and threaten us. And we learned a lot about how um, simple things that you think everybody should have a right to, of food, living conditions, money, were not the same for all people. And so that was a learning experience. What an incredibly valuable history lesson that you are sharing with us right now, Sharon, because we always think of, and you know, I'm 53, so I'm just a little bit younger than you, born about, you know, 13 years later. And we've always thought of our country as being so free. And as a, as a white male, if anyone has the reason to think that way, it's obviously been me. And to hear what you're saying and what you went through and what you lived, we need to hear this message right now because so many of us, take for granted what it is that we have that we could lose, right? We could lose a, some or a lot of what we're able to do right now as, 
and just with strokes of pens and with poor choices and if economy shut down and all these things, life could change. So the story that you're sharing with us right now becomes incredibly poignant in that we need to appreciate everything we have and understand how so many people have not had so much for a long time. Now we need to work together to maintain and have that tide lift the boats of every human so that we can all that we can all enjoy what this country brings to us. And, and so that brings me to a question with respect to you and the work that you've you've done. You went from that aspect. I think if I'm not mistaken, you headed up the the uh, Denver version or chapter of the uh, Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Is that right? Yes, I did. In college, I started getting involved with the UMAS uh, movement, which was United Mexican-American Students, which was based in uh, Boulder. So I started to get involved with how to work together with groups, how to uh, expand. And then I moved to Denver uh, actually very quickly because some of my friends were killed during bombings in Boulder. Um, and it was, a, it was a time where people were trying to make a stand, but I had to leave Boulder quickly. So I went to Denver and I started working in uh, Allstate Corporation for a year. And then I transferred to United Bank. It was called United Bank back then. And I had a Hispanic organization within the bank that I got involved with that was involved with the Hispanic Chamber. And I was their representative for years. Well, during the Oriole boom, bust, not boom, bust, uh, I was laid off and I didn't have a job and I was a single mom, single parent mom with a daughter and I got a job with the Hispanic Chamber. They knew me and I started working with them. And I worked my way up with the organization because I was learning that not only do we need to help sustain people who work from the earth, but we needed to help businesses because businesses that were thriving were actually hiring more people within the community because they knew the struggles that people in the community had and they would be willing to hire. Well, also coming with that comes the economic need for businesses and contracts. So I learned to start uh, fighting for contracts for minority businesses. Uh, and I was pleased and happy to lead up a group called the Minority and Women's Chamber, which was Asian, Black, Indian, uh, Women, and Hispanic Chamber, where we worked with people and said, you want a Bronco Stadium? Then what is it in for our organizations and our communities? And we would sit at tables with contracts in order to build a business for uh, all of our various business owners. Wow, what a powerful experience. Were you guys involved in some of the huge projects like you talked about, Mile High Stadium and things like that, things that is really part of the infrastructure of Denver currently? Yes, we were. And uh, we received from President Bush the points of light representing that we worked on, together on projects. But we did sit down with Pat Bolin, who is the most honorable man I've ever met. And he wanted a stadium. We all met with him as minority groups, education groups, different groups together. And I was pleased to be one of the spokespeople. And they said, he said, what do you want? I said, well, what's in it for us? I said, I want a percentage of construction, percentage of procurement. I want giving back to the communities. 
I want education scholarships, and I want hiring. And I want it in writing so nobody forgets after we start the project. And he said, <laughs> he said, I will do it. And he did it, and the man lived up to every single thing he promised. Wow, what a great story. And, and what a great impact that thing has had because the Broncos here, there's such a, you know, whether they're playing great or whether they're not playing so great like they are now, there's such a piece of the fabric here. So to be part of that was exceptional. And I, I'm interested now because now you just brought up a topic where what you were doing there was that was hard negotiation. That was being, you know, that wasn't being the velvet glove. That was kind of being the hammer. What did you study in college? What was your degree in when you were at CU? Uh, it was actually business. Business. Okay. Um, did you did you yeah, dream of opening your own business at one point? Actually, I did not. I I might go back then was to work within a corporation to move my way up, but then it switched after working with businesses through the Hispanic Chamber. That my best way to help businesses was to help them succeed, and the more they succeed, the more they give back to the community. So if I helped. X company get a contract and they got three million one day and I needed a thousand dollars sponsorship. I just call and I would get my thousand dollars sponsorship. So <laughs> it was about working together. One hand works together with the other. And then it was also about, you know, they would hire within the community. They didn't necessarily have to have a degree. If they had the potential, they would train them to move up in the company. A lot of the companies back then Hispanic companies, none of the owners had degrees, but they knew what they were doing in business and they could do it well. Yes. Oh, I love that. That gets me excited and pumped because so many people, you know, they think as entrepreneurs that they have to have all of this training or all of this skill or all of this experience. And at the end of the day, if you have the desire and you have an aptitude, you can learn skill and then you can start creating something. You just need support. You need people to believe in you. You need resources for, and opportunities. You put all that together with a drive and a hunger and then a willingness to learn. And, and I mean, I think so many people can own business and, and not everyone's going to be a Google, nor should they be. But everybody who wants to do that or at least taste that has has a chance. And, and I think that's what we're, you're really getting at in that point. We'll have a chance, but also make sure that you give back to the communities. If you succeed, remember to give back because part of success is not just how much money you make, but it's how much do you give back to the communities in order to start another generation of people growing and another generation. If you continue the growth process, then you will always have people that are helping and creating more businesses and creating more jobs. And it's an ongoing situation. It's a wheel that continues to turn. Ooh, I love that. I love that. Did, did you have a, um, speaking of this community business and reinvesting in the community, was there one particular group of business folks, one particular industry that you just found either especially fascinating or especially great to work with uh, as you went through your career? I think a lot were people in construction. I worked a lot with them because a lot of them, as I said, well, did not have degrees, but started their own companies, started it since they were young, and just knew how to put together bids, knew how to put together professional uh, projects. It was just wonderful to see them and how they could 
grow and pass on the knowledge to their kids. And, and it was a generational thing where the businesses were family businesses. It continued generation after generation. So cool. Oh, man, I'm getting so much from this. I, I want to move off this topic just a little bit into something that was we talked about a few minutes ago with respect to you helping other businesses and then fundraising and this kind of thing. From my conversations with Tammy, she considers you basically a guru in the act of fundraising, like a fundraising queen. And so I want to hear a little bit more about that, what got you so dynamically charged about that. And then I'd also like for you to share, if you wouldn't mind sharing, um, what are steps that, that someone who might be listening to this podcast and is a fundraiser or has a nonprofit and does fundraising or things like that, what could they learn from all your years of experience? Well, I, I think the fundraising part came very natural because I'm naturally wanting to help people and helping businesses was very natural for me. But then there were the people that really needed help in the communities. And I became disabled in 2013 and I started working with a group called SPMDTU, which is a Hispanic organization. Um, it's one of the oldest ones in the country. It was uh, started in the valley in the 1900s. Um, and what I found is that we needed to be able to help people um, that were less fortunate. And one of the things we did is we did a golf tournament in this summer for scholarships. And then I started up working with, uh, they hadn't done it for years, the food basket program. And this started about five years ago. And I started working with New Beginnings Ministry. And we started with 50 baskets. And now we're at 100 baskets. Um, I was successful, or we're almost successful here. In less than a week and a half, I was able to raise Close to 3,300. I'm short 200, but I'll get there. I'm not worried about that. Um, <laughs> so that we could do 100 baskets and pass them out next Saturday. It's important that um, during this pandemic that we're going through, people still have the desire to help other people. The Colorado Gives Day is a great example. $50 million was raised in Colorado alone. And my, my uh, Christmas food basket, I asked for people for donations. I needed 3500 And to be able to get to that point of people giving, you know, anything from $20 all the way to what Ramos Law did, you know, of $750, it's been incredible. Uh, it's just been such a, a blessing to see that people are willing to still help, even though a lot of them are in a situation where they don't have that much this year. But this year, the need is even more because many people lost their jobs, and they've been without jobs, and their kids are at home, and they, don't, they need more food than anything else. They don't need toys this year. They need food to sustain their families. That is so true. And, and I know so many people are in the same position as you as wanting to help and wanting to, to get involved. And so would you have tips? Because it sounds like you're, you, uh, you use your connections from so many years and you use your passion 
Do you have any strategies that you like to employ or deploy when it comes to fundraising? So again, if, if there were a group that says, man, we, you know, we fundraise for our particular group, what could they learn from you and all your experience on how to do that better? I think one of the key things is to get the information out. Make sure you publicize it. When there's not a pandemic, have an event where you could bring people together so you could explain what you're raising the money for so they could see a visual where they could have a time to network and to meet each other and so that they could see exactly what you're going to do in the future. Uh, we would have little fundraisers at night, uh, like happy hours. But during the pandemic, of course, we can't. But having people network to discuss the fundraiser, the purpose of it, publicizing that, using media, using your sources of contact. There's programs such as Nextdoor that you can publicize events. Um, there are other avenues that will do free advertisement for you. Utilize everything you can. Use Facebook. Use uh, Snapchat. Use whatever you can. That's Those the way to get the information out. Such great, great information. And hopefully people listening can use that. And one thing I would add from the other side. So, you know, my wife and I were on the board of a group called the Concerns of Police Survivors. And so we would do some fundraising for that that group. But then on the other side, as being part of Ramos Law and another business with Dr. Ramos called FitMD, we get approached by people looking for money and looking for contributions for their various efforts and their causes. And I would say one of the things that helps us determine where we should give our funds, because obviously, you know, everybody has some limit to the funds that they are able to give, regardless of how successful they are, there's a limit to it. And so how do you decide what to do? And, and I will share from our side, we look at things like, in this case, like supporting you, we, we didn't know you just a few weeks ago, but because of your connection with Tammy and our connection with Tammy and then Tammy talking about who you are as a person, that helps us say, well, even though our budget for this year is spent, we need to find some more money to help this, to help this person, this group and this cause, because we believe in two things. One, we believe in the cause. It lines up with our values as far as what we are and what we believe as a business and two, we line up with the value, the values of the person or the people involved. So my advice would be to anyone who is going out there considering uh, looking for funds, that it's a relationship game as well. So getting the cause out there, get, making yourself known is huge, but then also connecting with the people that you are hoping to get money from. So they get to know you as a person, see if your values line up there may be a time where you wouldn't want to accept someone's money as a cause because the values are just so off that it wouldn't feel you know, like there's good integrity there. But most of the time, the values, if you can get the values connected between the business and the people that are running these both sides of the equation, I find that you can at least get some sort of support, even if it's not financial, maybe it's just moral support, maybe it's a, a posting on their social channels and that kind of thing. So that would be my advice. Does that resonate with how you've uh, done it or some of the experience you've had? Absolutely. It's connections, making connections. Some people are not a good fit for your organization, and that's fine. Maybe they'll be a good fit for a different group. It just depends on what's a good fit. And always do the research. You know, before you go out and ask or are willing to help an organization, 
Make sure that their background is clean. Make sure that they're a legitimate organization. Unfortunately, during this pandemic, a lot of fraudulent organizations have started up just to raise money, and the money's really not going anywhere. So I, I recommend that people do their research and work with people that they know that have connections to whatever fundraising it is. Perfect. Perfect, Sharon. That is great advice as well. I, I hope the people listening that do have this as part of their service offering get something from that. And I want to kind of now evolve from that topic into something that, uh, from what I understand, you're still involved with is even though you're not going at the same full speed, all charging out like you were in your past, you're still, you're, you're not really, really retired. You're still doing some stuff, not only with the SPM TDU or DTU, but you're also doing things with some nonprofits. What nonprofits do you still spend your time and energy and resources with? Well, you know, I, I still always have my heart with the Hispanic Chamber, but there's a group called the Latina Foundation that's a wonderful foundation um, that help women, Latina women. You know, a lot of times women have been left behind uh, for various reasons. Um, and the Latina Foundation is one that I truly believe in. Uh, Juanita Chacon has uh, started it up. It's a wonderful group of people. Uh, that's one of the organizations that I really look at. Um, LEF, it's an education foundation, and they raise money for scholarships. So that's another group that I, I uh, really look at. And then, of course, Servicio de la Raza, which is Rudy Gonzalez, uh, which is part of the Gonzalez family, good friends of mine. Um, they do a lot of community service uh, work. They have a building out by um, Colfax and Federal in that area there. Um, so those are various groups that I really look at that help drive and lead our community. And so, Sharon, would you mind giving the audience what you do when evaluating? Because, again, with your experience and all the impact you've made over these several decades, every single nonprofit in this city would love to have your knowledge and expertise, wisdom, skill, connections. What do you use as the criteria so that someone listening, if they said, man, if, if I were wanting to get involved either on a volunteer basis or to look at really dive in or raise money for something for a nonprofit, how can you just share how you go about the process of selecting? So you mentioned three. There's obviously a reason why those three versus any of the other 3,000 that are out there, why you, you didn't choose to, to give your time because there's only so much of that that you can give as well. Uh, what could we learn from that from you as far as if we wanted to choose one to get involved with? I think uh, what you have to see is what the values align with, you know, like, uh, for instance, the Latina Foundation, they align themselves with working with women, Latina women, and that was what attracted me to that. Um, the um, uh, Latin American Education Foundation, it's about scholarships, about raising money for kids to go to college, which is always important. So that's why I aligned myself with that. And Servicios de la Raza helps people a lot, less fortunate people with various, various, various um, programs such as mental health programs, food baskets, uh, clothing sometimes, 
So that was something that I was interested in. So you have to look at deep in what you're looking for as far as uh, are you interested in business. If you're interested in business, look at the Hispanic Chamber. If you're looking for mental health or programs like that, maybe work with servicios. If you want kids to go to college, look at um, Latin American Education Foundation. But if you're looking for women's uh, leadership and mentoring and programs geared towards women, then look at the Latina uh, Foundation. Perfect. If you were looking for, um, if you had to answer this question, maybe this is a, a trick question with no good answer. From your perspective on what foundations and nonprofits truly need, especially in the given day, whatever, you know, wherever we find ourselves right now, do they, is there a greater need for money or is there a greater need for time? In other words, do they need more volunteer hours uh, than money? Do they need more money than volunteer or is it in, impossible to split that baby and, and they need more of both at this point? I think uh, during this pandemic, volunteers aren't needed as much, except for maybe certain times, like when we're doing the Christmas food baskets. Because of the pandemic, you're not supposed to be around other people. So now they're looking for funding because every single one of their fundraisers have been canceled this year because of economics. Um, the other thing, too, is I think depending on how the economic climate is, uh, what the climate is politically out there is where you look to do more volunteer work or fundraising. For instance, if the political climate is not that, that it is helping the communities, then you may need to do more fundraising. Um, the last group I forgot to mention was News Ed. News Ed is a wonderful organization that helps people with home ownership, Latino homes with home ownership. And that was an organization that I neglected to uh, mention. They also do a big fundraiser every year downtown, Cinco de Mayo. They, every event that they've had was canceled, but yet they do help a lot in the different communities. And that's an important organization to look at. So I think what you do is you look at the economic times, the political times, to make a decision whether you could do volunteer work or if you need to do more fundraising. I think because of the money that was given for Colorado Gives, it showed that a lot of organizations needed money because they weren't able to have fundraisers and they wouldn't be able to stay open next year if they didn't have the fundraising. Wow, what a great distinction. And thank you for bringing that light to us that we, we should all give where we can because some people have more time than money to give, but if that group that you want to give with doesn't need the support of, of human hands and human minds and human hearts. Even if you could give, like you said earlier, five, 10, $20, it all adds up to Colorado gives, which raised so much money. Now, as we bring this to a close, you've been so incredible Sharon, in, in what you've shared with us today. Would you be able to give a piece of advice that either has helped shape you deeply as to who you've become or that you would want to pass along to help someone along the way coming up in their journey, uh, something that's just been extremely valuable to you that you'd like to pass along? I think what I'd like to pass along is that we all have been blessed with abilities to do things in our life, but you truly never are going to ever be successful 
and have everything you want in life unless you give back to people. Part of our life is to give, and we need to be sure that we do it in a good, honest, giving way, no strings attached, but give from our hearts. That is beautiful. Hey, there's nothing to top that. And you just made me smile with that. And thank you. Thank you, Sharon, for giving of yourself to all of us on this podcast for enriching my life and making me just feel so thankful and blessed to have you as my neighbor, my Colorado neighbor, my sister here in in this state. While we haven't gotten to meet in person yet, I promise you that's coming. So thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much. And thank you for helping us by getting the word out by using the podcast. You are very welcome. So you take good care and we'll be looking forward to supporting you. And we will be down there with you to help get these turkey baskets assembled and and sent out to the families, the hundred families and can't wait. So I look forward to seeing you there. Okay.